This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what is going on, actually? What the hell is going on is we are in the danger zone. <laughs> not, the, not the great danger zone with Tom Cruise. No, the, the one with Hal Brands. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Michael Beckley. Please exactly. don't forget. I don't know which one's Maverick and which one's Goose. They'll have to fight that one out. <laughs> For those of you who got through that silly introduction, because apparently Mark and I can't take something even as serious as potential war with China, China, (laughs) we are talking to two of our colleagues who have a truly fantastic and impressively written book out, The Danger Zone, The Coming Conflict with China by Hal Brands and Michael Beckley. And we've got them on in just a little bit to talk about what the threat is that China represents, whether there's going to be war with Taiwan, whether we are ready, are we taking it seriously? enough. And uh, I think one of the conclusions that unfortunately I've had to come to in reading their book is we are neither ready nor are we sufficiently serious. And I think a lot of people are drawing the wrong conclusions about the threat from China because they're looking at China in the wrong way. We've had this narrative of a rising China that's becoming more powerful. It's an economic powerhouse. It's embraced capitalism with totalitarianism at the same time and and managed to do that and become rich and use Western wealth to build up its military and it's strong and it's powerful and it's rising and eventually it's going to pass us and it's going to be more powerful than us and then we're not going to be able to push back because we're declining and they're rising and that actually is not true. Uh, that they do a very interesting job of talking about how China really is on a precipice of decline. And they have a demographic explosion that's coming because of the one-child policy, where literally one of the facts in the book that I found fascinating is that by 2025, sale of adult diapers are going to outpace baby diapers in the PRC. You have 40 million more bachelors than single women in the country, which is a recipe for uh, belligerence. They may even make the point that China could actually have an incentive to start a war just to throw some of those excess men into a meat grinder for, for economic reasons. This was what makes China so dangerous because China has great ambitions and its window to achieve those ambitions is closing because its decline is coming. And that's when it becomes most dangerous. And so the worry about a conflict with China is actually real, but it's coming sooner than we think. And it's coming not because China is strong, but because China is facing a collapse into weakness, which is, I just found a fascinating analysis of of the situation. Right. So we've talked about this before. We've had our our colleague Nick Eberstadt on, who's done really, I think, groundbreaking work on the results of the one-child policy. It doesn't matter what you think about, you know, the issues behind it. The results are heretofore unseen in world history, the imbalance between men and women. And the result is just to paint the picture that we that we painted with Nick. The result is a is a country in which is like an upside down pyramid, a dwindling number of people, mostly single children of parents mm-hmm. who are themselves single children of parents, with no social welfare system, no old age pensions, and no social security. And as a result, you've got the weight of this country bearing down on the next generation. You have an economy that is, and I think there's no disagreement about this, an economy that is shrinking. You have a leader who is increasingly militaristic, increasingly dictatorial, who has fashioned himself as the Mao of the 21st century. And the reality is, you know, what, what did Winston Churchill say? You know, While England Slept was the title of a book he read about the 1930s during the German buildup. We could write that same book about America. While we slept, China has been building up and it is a potent and dangerous country. We made the mistake in the late 1990s and early 2000s of bringing China into the international economic system and, and making them wealthy by through international trade, thinking that this would democratize them. You know, but and, wait, wait, wait a second. Let me argue with you here for a sec. Okay, I don't think that it was a mistake 
to try to bring to, them into the WTO? To try to bring China into what people sort of fancifully call the community of nations, to try to have China live by the same rules of the road of international commerce, international trade, international finance, and, and international relations that the rest of us live by. I don't think that was the fatal mistake, and, and maybe you and I just disagree. I think the fatal mistake was when they started to abuse those rules of the road, and they didn't in the beginning, when they started to abuse those rules of the road to bend them to their advantage to, to cheat Right. We never called them out. Well, first of all, I, I, I remember you as one of the foremost champions of economic sanctions and economic isolation of dictatorship. <laughs> so this is this new uh, USA engaged rhetoric uh, that coming from you is really uh, is really funny. Uh, we could, why don't we do the same thing with Cuba? Let's uh, let's bring them into the international trading system. What happens is, is when we brought them into the international trading system and sent American companies in to invest, what happened is we one, we enriched them for a period of time which allowed them to build up their military and, and the weapons that they will use against us one day. And at the same time, created a cadre of American businesses who are basically foreign agents for a, for a totalitarian regime. Because they're the, they're the ones who are going to be coming to Congress when, when there's a war coming up and we want to impose sanctions on China. It isn't going to be the Chinese ambassador going up to Capitol Hill. It's going to be all these corporations with business interests in Beijing that are lobbying against it. So I do think it was a mistake, but I don't want to get into a set. I'm, I'm no, you know, Bob Zelik, who argued that China was a responsible stakeholder in the, you know, in the global system, his phrase, not mine. I don't want to distract from the discussion with our colleagues either, but I do think that there was an inflection point at which China actually could have gone in one direction or another. Maybe that's, maybe that's wrong. Maybe my interpretation is wrong and maybe the people I listen to are wrong about this, but it quickly became obvious that China was going to manipulate this system to its own advantage and, as you describe, become very rich, very dangerous, and shame on us because we never called them out on this. Even even if you agree with the Bob Zellicks of this world or the Nixons of this world or the Henry Kissingers of this world about this question, there should be no doubt that China began cheating very quickly and used it to very dangerous advantage to the point that we now, uh, they are they are actually what we call a peer competitor. Well, here's what we do know, is that they've become very powerful militarily, but their economic power is declining. One of the things that they mentioned in their book, China's GDP growth dropped from 15% in 2007 to 6% in 2019. They say that studies show that their actual growth rate is probably half the official figure. And here's a fascinating fact that I didn't know that they that they had in their book. China has built more than 50 ghost cities, which are entire cities filled with empty offices, empty apartments, empty malls, empty airports. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, and and empty gas stations. I still remember colleagues coming back saying, oh, my God, they had gas stations for like 150 cars and there was just no one there. Yeah, and 20% of the homes in China are vacant. This is a country that is in economic turmoil. And it's going to get worse. And that makes them dangerous, is the thesis of our, of our guests. And so why don't we bring them in and let them explain why? So we already mentioned we've got Hal Brands and Michael Beckley. Both of them are scholars at AEI. Hal is a senior fellow here, and he's also the Henry A. Kissinger. Hmm, I wonder what Henry A. Kissinger thinks about this book. Distinguished <laughs> professor of global affairs at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. He's also a columnist at Bloomberg. We could go on for quite a long time with Hal and Michael's resumes, which makes me a little bit sad because they're both so prolific and makes me look bad. But <laughs> But Michael Beckley is a non-resident senior fellow here as well. He also focuses on uh, U.S.-China competition. He's also an associate professor at Tufts University. Here's our interview. Mike and Hal, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. So let me just say, I love your book. I read it driving my kids. I do all my most of my books on Audible these days, and I read it driving through the woods of Vermont and New Hampshire, uh, taking my kids to college. It was just terrific. And I also love the shameless glomming on to Top Gun with the title, uh, uh, Danger Zone. What's fascinating is, is that you have taken on the conventional wisdom, which is we need to worry about a rising China. And basically said that China isn't really rising anymore. It's, it's uh, heading to a precipice and about to fall over, and that's what makes it more dangerous. Explain. Yeah, that's right. And I should say at the outset that I really try to glom onto popular culture in all my books. So the last one was called <laughs> The Twilight Struggle to try to capture the, the teen angst market. Uh, and this one is obviously a shameless effort to, to ride the maverick wave. Uh, and, and you captured the argument just right, which is that it's, it's probably not right to think about China as a rising power. It's, 
it's better to think of China as a risen power whose power is in some ways peaking right now. And, and so the basic argument we make in the book is that China's days of easiest, most explosive economic growth are behind it. Uh, the days when it could most easily expand its international influence are behind it because it has annoyed a growing coalition of countries, mostly advanced democracies around the world. And so uh, Xi Jinping uh, and the folks around him are going to find it harder and harder to achieve the geopolitical objectives they have set out, whether that's reclaiming Taiwan or becoming the dominant power in Asia and eventually the world peacefully. They're, they're not simply going to zip past the United States effortlessly and, and take over the spot of the world's top superpower. What that does mean, though, is that China will become more tempted to use force, to use coercion, to seize what it wants while it still has an opportunity to do so. And it will have a very good opportunity, especially in a military sense, to do so later this decade. So, Mike, let me bounce this over to you. An opportunity doesn't necessarily mean uh, a willingness to grasp conflict. And this is really sort of the moment we found ourselves in framing this in the in the sort of the Russia-Ukraine context, right? Which is, okay, so Xi Jinping looks at Putin's adventures in Ukraine and says to himself, hmm, maybe yes, but there are also plenty of flashing warning lights, especially, obviously, lately, but flashing warning lights. So how do we judge this? I think if China were just your everyday power, we wouldn't have to worry so much, but it's the combination of China's sky-high ambitions, which are going to require drastic action on the behalf of the CCP if it wants to live up to them. And Xi Jinping doesn't strike me as one to shy away from those ambitions. I mean, they've been declaring that they want to make China the most powerful country in the world. They've made very clear that Taiwan belongs to them, as well as 80% of the East and South China Seas. And so it's the combination of the headwinds that Hal brought up with those sky-high ambitions that make for such a combustible combination. That's why we worry so much. And we, you know, it's not just that if you look behind the curtain, you can find plenty of evidence that China's leaders are thinking along these lines, not sort of woe is me and we have all these problems. But, you know, we we definitely want to continue to accomplish what we've sketched out. Uh, We're facing these increasing headwinds and now we need to start taking more decisive action um, and being more assertive across a whole range of areas. So walk us through because the concept of a rising China is so ingrained in our psyche here. Walk us through the case that you make, which you do very eloquently in the book, that China is not in fact rising, that China's face. Walk us through some of the headwinds they're facing, the demographic challenges they're facing. One of the things that jumped out at me from the book is you say that in 2025, sales of adult diapers are going to outpace baby diapers in in, in China. That's (laughs) how bad the the demographic problem. Yeah, Yeah, so it's, it's, uh, (laughs) you know, I, I think it's important to bear in mind that China's economic miracle didn't just happen. It it happened at the confluence of a handful of really important factors that just positioned China incredibly well for rapid uh, growth. You had the demographic dividend. China's population was prime for productivity because you had a huge population of working age individuals with relatively few little kids or elderly parents to take care of. You had a, a political leadership that was committed to economic and reform and opening, basically moving away from the command economy and liberalizing the Chinese economy in in selective but important ways. You had an autocracy that still remained very thuggish but became somewhat more responsive and meritocratic and uh, basically attuned to economic incentives in the way that Chinese leaders ruled. You had a welcoming world. You had a world, particularly the United States and other major democracies, that thought that China's economic rise was a good thing and and helped it integrate into the world economy, gave it access to Western markets, uh, invested in in Chinese industries, and basically fueled its dramatic growth. Uh, You had a country that was almost self-sufficient in important resources. And so when you put all those things together, that was just a recipe for explosive growth. The problem is that all of those things have turned around uh, over the past couple of decades. And so China is now approaching, may already be in the process of, a demographic implosion that's going to see the number of workers slump and the number of retirees boom. It's going to be sort of like our social security problem on steroids. It's a period of economic reform and opening has stalled and really been in reverse for at least 10 to 15 years at this point. The political system is becoming more more brittle, more repressive, more totalitarian in ways that are not good 
for growth. It's running out of resources. It's running out of arable land. And of course, it has annoyed a great number of countries that were formerly rooting for its rise. So when you put all these things together, China's just going to have a very difficult time maintaining anything like the levels of growth it had in the past. I think you both know me well enough to know that I'm not a huge fan of IR theory or, or international paradigms that teach us about such things. You have actually, I think, rather magnificently managed to uh, to articulate some theories, fit China in very nicely, and not make it either boring or pedantic. So kudos to bo- both of you. But let me press on this question. China very neatly fits into your argument that historically powers that have peaked and are in decline are at their most dangerous. Okay, give us a couple of other examples and do me the favor of giving the countervailing examples too, because I think there are a number of countervailing examples and it'll be good to hit those out of the park too. Maybe Mike, you start? Sure. Yeah. So in the book, we look at every case over the past couple hundred years of these peaking powers. And there's obviously the catastrophic examples like Germany, you know, starts World War One in large part because it thinks it's about to get crushed in a Russian and French vice. There's the catastrophic Imperial Japan example because, uh, you know, the Japanese are worried the United States is going to choke out its empire in Asia. But there's obviously countervailing examples like, you know, Japan in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. So it has this big boom and then it starts to slow down. People in the U.S. think Japan is going to take over the world. Um, and that clearly doesn't happen. But, you know, that's those kind of examples are sort of the ones that prove the rule because obviously Japan had an alliance with the United States. It had reasonable trade prospects. So the Japanese could count on continuing open markets, um, access to technology. And Japan was a democracy. And we found that the regime type actually matters quite a bit because in a democracy, these leaders represent a broader array of societal interests, some of which you know, want to get more aggressive and be more imperial, others of which favor a more laissez-faire or liberal approach. And that tends to act as a shock absorbers in times of economic uh, crisis. And an authoritarian regime where you have tight links between big business that wants new markets abroad and the state and the military, and you have a regime that's concerned about its legitimacy and doesn't have elections to bolster that, you don't have those shock absorbers. And so Yes, there are some countervailing examples, but they don't really apply to China. China checks a lot of the most worrying boxes. You not only have the slowing growth, the strategic encirclement, the brutal authoritarian regime, you also have the fact that China is a revanchist power that has this nationalist narrative that there are lost Chinese territories that have to be taken back one way or another, and they're willing to sacrifice and pay enormous costs to make those things happen. Those kind of countries with a chip on their shoulders tend to be the most volatile. Right. So just to follow up really quickly, you know, you talk about World War II Germany as a country with a, you know, with a chip on its shoulder, um, as opposed to World War I Germany, which felt crushed beneath a vice. But one of the key characteristics of a lot of these declining, dangerous declining empires is that there's somebody else rising, right? There's somebody else who's actually edging into their territory. This is the classic German example, but there are plenty of them throughout, you know, millennia of history. So we don't have that now, do we? I thought we were declining. People keep telling me we're declining. Well, but- kind of, right? I mean, so, you know, decline is always a relative concept. It's it's not so much about how well you're doing in a vacuum. It's how well you're doing compared to whoever else you're you're worried about. And one of the things that makes peaking powers so nervous is that they have typically ticked off their neighbors. They have scared their neighbors when they were growing fast and becoming more assertive. And so they start to worry as they peak that countries are going to be out to, to get them, right? And, and that tends to promote uh, the more aggressive behavior. China does face a version of this problem in the sense, it's not that countries around the world are out to get China, although I think the CCP leadership actually does believe that, not, not realizing that it's largely a response to China's own behavior. But China's behavior has provoked a pretty significant blowback. And, and so if you look at some of the many coalitions that are taking shape in the Asia-Pacific or the Indo-Pacific or whatever we're calling it this week region to constrain Chinese influence, uh, the AUKUS partnership between the U.S., the U.K. and Australia, the Quad, uh, which is the U.S., Australia, Japan and, and India, the deeper operational planning that the U.S. and Japan appear to be involved in on what they might do if China were to attack Taiwan, the fact that defense budgets in the region are rising pretty quickly as, as countries up and down the Western Pacific become more concerned about what China is doing. And so China does have to worry 
that other countries are doing things, even if those things are mostly meant to, as, as means of self-defense, that will complicate China's prospects to achieve what it wants to achieve in the coming years. And so the question then becomes, does China try to preempt that by going fast now? Isn't a contemporary example of that Russia? I mean, Russia is a declining war, and they've invaded Georgia, then they've invaded Ukraine, then they invaded Ukraine again. They got involved in the Syrian civil war. Isn't Russia the most contemporary example of, of this theory in action? I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Mark, because that is the, our, our latest case prior to China. I mean, people sort of forget that Russia was a resurgent power in the 2000s, where it's racking up 8% economic growth rates every year, largely because of high oil prices. And then as those oil prices you know, collapsed after the 2008 financial crisis, they dragged down Russia's economy and Putin's popularity with it. And he, he reacts in a number of ways, obviously by becoming more repressive internally, but also by trying to revive Russia's fortunes by pressuring former Soviet states to join this Russian customs union that was basically asking them to become Russian economic vassals. And obviously a big part of Ukraine didn't want to go along with that, was much more interested in a comprehensive trade deal with the European Union. And we know how that that initial conflict escalates, brings us to 2014, and then all the way up till today. An example of this pattern playing out over and over again. So here's the concern about the analysis, which is that, so if, if you've got a declining power that's feeling encircled and therefore lashes out, then what is the policy prescription for that? Does it mean that we should not be encircling them? That we should not be taking steps to bolster our defenses? We should not be, you know, reinvigorating the quad? We should not be expanding our alliances because that could provoke China into doing something it feels encircled? Or do, Thank you, is Joe this, Biden. Is this an argument for appeasement? <laughs> no, it's, it's a tricky one, right? Because at, at some level, peaking states act aggressively out of insecurity, out of a fear that the future will be worse than the present is. And so they've got to go quickly to achieve what they want. But that doesn't mean that you can just sort of sit back and be paralyzed from strengthening your own defenses because the United States has a no kidding near term problem vis-a-vis China, which is that if from 2030 onward, China may well be in long term decline vis-a-vis the United States from now until 2030, China is going to have a really attractive window of military opportunity to overturn the balance of power in the Western Pacific, but possibly by invading or otherwise coercing Taiwan. And so if the United States assumes a posture of saying we, we just can't make China any more insecure than it already is, we're going to be in a terrible place by the latter half of this decade. And, and so it's kind of a twofold prescription. On the one hand, yes, of course, you should try to affo- avoid gratuitously provoking China or doing things that don't strengthen you, but that uh, annoy the Chinese and cause them to lash out. But you can't simply be backed into a stance where you're saying we're not going to strengthen our military posture in the Western Pacific. We're not going to sell more and better arms to the Taiwanese. We're not going to do more and deeper planning with our allies because those are the sorts of things that are going to be required to make a land grab on Taiwan look unattractive even to a more risk acceptant China. And just the last last little piece on this, the U.S. confronted something similar during the Cold War. And so during the Korean War, when we were talking about rearming West Germany – to strengthen NATO, there were people who said, this could provoke the Soviet Union to start a war. And American policymakers said, yes, there's a chance of that. But ultimately, over the long term, it will be more provocative if we are so weak that we cannot defend ourselves in Central Europe. Well, that's Danny's point that that's what that was the Biden philosophy in Ukraine. Right. Which is we don't don't provoke the Russians, right? Don't don't arm the Ukrainians because because that'll provoke Moscow to do something, and, and, and that was a really flawed approach. Well, I mean, I think there are fundamentally different worldviews coming at China. But what's interesting about China policy in the United States, and this is not where I wanted to go with my question, but it is an interesting. <laughs> well, it, it, Mark has provoked me to say something interesting. It, it, you know, miracles can happen. Miracles can happen. <laughs> <laughs> you beat me to it. <laughs> He's so predictable. Oh, my God. It's like having two husbands, Uh, except except my husband is actually pleasant and respectful. Uh, Sorry, wait, let me stop laughing. Because he's afraid of you. 
That's what I'm looking for in a spouse, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) The beatings will begin again tomorrow. So, I mean, we've got interesting political wins that are going in the United States, right? So you've got hawks who are obviously concerned about a rising China, concerned about everything that's been happening, not just in the last couple of years, but everything that's been happening over the last 20 years, because this is not a short-term trend in China. And then you've got others who are, like Donald Trump, come at it from a somewhat different perspective, right, who come at this from a much more nationalistic perspective. You know, you're not going to tell us what to do. You're not going to make TVs over there. We want to make our own crappy TVs. You know, stop making iPhones. And so you do actually have political threads on the left and right that dictate a stronger posture, which is interesting. I want to hear you guys react to that question. I originally wanted to ask you is one of the great things about AI is that, you know, as the former president of the Heritage Foundation once said to me, AI, walk down the hall, get a different opinion. But I I said my response was, well, I think that's one of our strengths. So two of your colleagues, two people who we think the world of as well, Oriana Schuyler Mastro and Derek Scissors, wrote a piece saying the equivalent of, uh, Jane, you ignorant slut. (laughs) You two are completely wrong. Of course China has not peaked yet. They're, They're well on their way towards peaking. So let's talk about all those things. So Derek uh, was actually kind enough to join us at the AEI event to, to launch the book as, as well. And it was nice to, to have a conversation uh, with him about this. You know, I, I think that the disagreement that we have with Oriana and Derek is, is really one of degrees more than, than anything else. And so, you know, my understanding of the good work that Oriana has been doing on the Taiwan issue in particular is that, you know, she, like, like us, is scared to death of a Chinese move against Taiwan in the near future. My read of Derek's work on the Chinese economy is the Chinese economy has been headed for the toilet for a number of years and continues to head in that direction. And, and so I think what we end up debating is, is questions like, you know, how acute is China's economic crisis or is it just kind of long-term grinding stagnation? And if it's one rather than the other, how does that affect uh, China's uh, strategic calculus? But in, in general, I don't see a lot of huge fundamental differences. I will say, though, that, that this is you know, one of the nice things about AI, which is that it, it keeps you on your toes and forces you to sharpen your arguments a little bit when you know that your colleagues, who are some of the, the smartest folks in town when it comes to China issues, are, are not going to cut you a break on these things. So let's talk about practicality. So people look at Ukraine and say, oh, my gosh, now Taiwan's next, right? It's different, though, because, of course, Ukraine is a country with a big, porous border where you can or troops over it, and Taiwan is an island, and you have to make an amphibious landing and be able to reach it. Brookings came out with a uh, study recently suggesting that uh, China probably would, wouldn't have an easy time uh, taking Taiwan. Where do you fall on that? Do we have the capabilities in place, and have we given the Taiwanese the capabilities to deny China the ability to cross the Taiwan Strait? And if not, what should we be doing? So I think our position is defending Taiwan is, is doable. Deterring a Chinese assault on Taiwan is, is doable. But the United States and Taiwan have been dragging their feet, implementing a strategy that, frankly, defense experts came up with more than a decade ago and is completely viable using existing technologies. The whole idea of turning Taiwan into a prickly porcupine where it stocks up on um, anti-ship and anti-air missiles and drones and mines that can basically fend off an invasion or um, pick apart a, a blockade force that gets too close to their coastline, that the United States spreading out and hardening its base infrastructure so that China doesn't have the option of a Pearl Harbor-style strike on you know a few, all the American eggs concentrated in just a couple of baskets right now um, on Okinawa. And this builds on just a few natural advantages that the United States and Taiwan have just that, you know, one is just history. I mean, no, no blockade that I know of in the past 200 years has allowed one country to fully conquer another. And amphibious invasions are the hardest mission in warfare. There's very few successful cases and they are pretty much all against overmatched forces. So this would be the most complex military operation ever. And for the Chinese who haven't fought a war since 1979, you know, starting off on the double black diamond of uh, military operations is probably not going to be easy for them. There's also just the geographic reality that you know, the Taiwan Strait is perilous. And some times of the year, it's the windiest spot in the world. You have typhoons and 20-foot waves there. Taiwan itself is a natural fortress with 90% of its coastline, either cliffs or, or mudflats. And then there's just the technological factors weighing against China. I mean, we're in an era of long-range precision-guided munitions. It's just 
a lot easier today to blow stuff up than to take and conquer and hold on to territory. And so the United States and Taiwan have built-in asymmetric advantages that they could exploit, yet they still continue to rely on big exposed bases, large multi-role platforms that may not make it off the ground if China just unloads with an air and missile bombardment at the start of a war. And so we're, we're trying to join the chorus of people saying, look, this is a completely doable and tractable problem to take care of, but it requires political will that so far has been, been lagging um, in order to actually change the military structure and posture in the region. You mentioned in the book that President Trump uh, gave $20 billion in arms sales to Taiwan, which was uh, a dramatic increase. One of the other things he did was he, uh, which seems to be unrelated, but is he pulled out of the INF Treaty with Russia. Uh, which banned both conventional and and nuclear intermediate-range missiles. What opportunity does that give us uh, to deploy capabilities in the the Pacific that could be a deterrent to a a Chinese invasion? I mean, I think it's a real opportunity, and I I think that the issues are not unrelated. I think one of the problems, there were two problems with the INF Treaty. One was that the United States was literally the only country in the world observing it because (laughs) the Russians had ceased to do so. The, The other was that since originally it only bound the United States and, and Russia, uh, the Soviet Union first, then Russia, it left China free to deploy what we would consider an, an INF range missile force with pretty devastating implications for the balance of power in the Western Pacific. And, and so if one of the things the United States is going to do, need to do in any conflict with Taiwan is to strike targets on the Chinese mainland without getting to, without bringing aircraft carriers so close to China's shores that they come in within range of Chinese anti-ship missiles, or striking ports or, or embarkation points for a Chinese invasion fleet, then intermediate range missiles can be available. And we're talking about conventionally armed yeah. ones, just just to be clear here, yes. right? The nuclear issue sometimes. Yeah, NF Treaty banned both. Right, right. And but in, in the Pacific, we'd primarily be talking about conventionally armed things. They can come in very, very handy. The trick is figuring out where to base them. There, there's only so much kind of U.S. sovereign territory in the region where you can put these things. And that's kind of towards the extremity of their range. It works a lot better if you have access to say uh, sites in Japan or even the Philippines. We're we're not there yet politically. I I think we could easily get there given how bad tensions are getting in the region. And, And one of the things we learned from the INF deployment saga the first time around, so in the late 70s and early 80s, is that nobody's going to tell you that they'll host your missiles until you actually have missiles to deploy, right? They're not, they're not going to absorb the political cost of doing that until they actually get some security benefit out of it. And so I think the, the way to think about the choreography of this is that we develop the capability while having quiet conversations with our allies. And then once the capability is ready, you get into actual no kidding talks about where we might base these things. Okay, I hate to, as usual, bring this down to the base topic of politics, but I mean, we have a political problem. First of all, we haven't invested in the military in a way that is you know, that is going to prepare us optimally. One of the things that Oriana writes, uh, Oriana and Derek write in in their foreign affairs piece, but Oriana has been saying this for a long time, is the Chinese are going to have you know are going to have a very significant navy, probably potentially even 10 to 15 years before we are in the position that we need to be in. Now, we can we can gear up, but we haven't. So that's number one. Number two, we do have at this point, you know, we can say lots of bad things about Donald Trump and, you know, don't get me started, but we really have not had presidents, either Bush or Obama uh, or Biden, who are really interested in getting serious about this for a whole variety of reasons, economic costs, but also fear of conflict. And, you know, we can we can hear the arguments made. So, you know, how do we do this quiet buildup if we are not prepared? And if I can bring in just very quickly the, the comment that one of our other colleagues made, I was writing this morning about um, the new Taiwan Policy Act that Lindsey Graham and, and Bob Menendez introduced, which helps us really sort of you know, ratchet up a little bit and changes some of our policy towards Taiwan. Our good friends Zach Cooper and, and Rich Armitage wrote in War on the Rocks, hey, you know, cart, horse, you know, pledging all this stuff to Taiwan. We don't even have it. You know, why are we making the Chinese mad before we have any of this? These are big, serious political problems. What do we do? Yeah, I agree. I think step one is to sort of backtrack from what we have been doing, which is to talk very loudly while not investing in the big sticks. So, you know, things like symbolic 
visits and, and just talking about upgrading Taiwan's status in various ways that don't actually improve its ability to defend itself against China or to enhance U.S. military power in the region are exactly what you shouldn't do uh, to keep things quiet. At the same time, I guess I'm sort of partially optimistic and partially very pessimistic. Uh, I'm optimistic in the sense that you know getting tough with China is one of the few bipartisan issues there are today. You have very high-level officials in both the Pentagon and the intelligence community warning about a much shorter timeline, potentially, for a war over Taiwan. And you at least have the services trying to at least talk about ways that they could, you know, sink ships in the Western Pacific in addition to fight land wars. And I think also Russia did sort of a, a, a backhanded favor in the sense of just reminding everyone that, you know, when a brutal dictator says a country doesn't exist, um, and they're going to crush them, that we should take those statements literally. And so I think that has helped light a fire under some some butts that needed to be uh, lit up. On the other hand, there's obviously still huge roadblocks on, on the American side. It's not just the political factors you mentioned. I mean, there's also just entrenched bureaucratic obstacles where you have, you know, Mackenzie Eaglin has written about this extensively. You have combatant commanders that want these large multi-role platforms to do lots of peacetime missions that are ill-suited for a high-intensity war in Taiwan. And on the Taiwanese side, I mean, yes, they've come up with a new strategy, but implementing that is just really hard. Because if you're a Taiwanese politician, you know, how are you going to sell to the Taiwanese people that your military strategy is to basically hunker down, uh, you know, get into a defensive crouch, let the Chinese just pummel you and then fight a guerrilla war against a potential amphibious invasion? That's just a much harder sell than, hey, let's buy some more F-16s and take the fight to the enemy, you know, those things are sexy and you can really sell those. So they're just in, they're just built-in bureaucratic and political obstacles. Our hope is just, again, by joining this chorus of really trying to show in various ways that the situation is dire, that you can start to break down that logjam. Um, at the end of the day, I'm a cynic, though, so I don't know how effective that's going to be, but um, you know, we're at least trying to do our small part. I mean, just, just to add to what Mike says, I think the fundamental question is whether we and our friends in the region are going to start treating this issue like the emergency that we say that it is. And, and so if you listen to U.S. officials, there's now a drumbeat of statements saying that this is not a 2035 problem. This is a problem that's coming at us much, much quicker. DOD, now they'll all they'll say is that Taiwan isn't going to be invaded in the next two years. You've had the director of national intelligence say that the threat is acute this decade, you've had high-ranking military officials say that they worry about something happening in the 25 to 27 uh, time period. And yet, bureaucratically, politically, we're still treating this like a problem that's that's way off in the future. We had the luxury of doing that 15 years ago. We don't have the luxury of doing it today. And so, so talking about a problem like it's the challenge of a century and approaching it like it's business as usual is the worst possible combination. Hal, you're a historian of the of the Cold War. Your last book was called The Twilight Struggle. One of the reasons why we were able to deter a Soviet invasion across the Fulda Gap was Article 5 of the NATO Charter, which, which they knew if they did that, they would be at war with the United States. One of the reasons Putin invaded Ukraine and not the Baltic states is because of Article 5 of the NATO Charter. Uh, President Biden has three times said that he will, if China invades, he will defend and then three times been forced to walk back that and say, no, really, our policy of strategic ambiguity is, is still in place. Should we have a policy of strategic ambiguity or a st- policy of strategic clarity? I'm, I'm a bit conflicted on this issue because on the one hand, I, I think that clear commitments, all things equal, are better than ambiguous commitments. There's less room for misperception. You, you really don't want China to start a war assuming that the United States will not come in. And then we do, and it's a terrible situation for everyone. That, that said, I am dictators not, never miscalculate. Dictators never miscalculate, right? And, and so all, all that being said, though, I'm, I'm a little bit ambivalent about this issue um, for, for a couple of reasons. One is that I, I think it's actually fairly clear that the United States, if China simply attacked Taiwan in an unprovoked fashion, would come to Taiwan's defense. As you mentioned, Biden has said it three times. Uh, George W. Bush said it back in the early 2000s uh, as well. And that's long how U.S. policy has basically been interpreted. And if I were a a PLA planner, I I wouldn't plan on any other basis. On on the other hand, or I guess the second uh, reason for this, is that I'm a little bit worried about rocking the boat in the Taiwan Strait in a major way right now, when to be very clear, we're just not ready for the conflict that could erupt. I think China would view a shift towards strategic clarity, as it's called, 
as a major change in the status quo in the Taiwan Strait, as a major move away from our one China policy. And so you could you could kick off the crisis you're hoping to avoid. I, I would prefer to have the discussion about strategic clarity once we've done more on the capability standpoint, because I think that's where our real problem is. My exit question, I'm listening to you both. I agree that we have much more of an element of seriousness among policymakers and among military planners. What I don't see is a seriousness on the part of our leadership. I really don't, actually. And part of it is because we're hoping it away. That's a great American tra- tradition, uh, you know. Uh, and and part of it is a, a belief that America is America. You know, if we get into a conflict, you know, it'll be just like you know, 1941. Skunk works, and it's not that. That is not the case anymore. And it, it, part of that is that is that I think there isn't a real the appreciation. Germans bombed Bo- uh, Pearl Harbor. <laughs> Did we back down? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> But there's a real lack of awareness of, of our, not our decline, but of the of the growing parity between us and China. You know, we went in Desert Storm, we introduced the world to PGMs, precision-guided munitions, and we were the only ones that had precision-guided munitions. Now Hezbollah has precision-guided munitions. The Chinese have stolen, they have developed. I don't know how good they are, but this there's a lot more to worry about our capability here. And... I want you to tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> I, I think you're right. Uh, you're, you're, Go ahead. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> See, Mark? Um, said I, I mean, was I, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're, you're definitely right. I think, you know, the way... <laughs> I mean, we we think that the, you know, as Hal has, uh, has said, you know, the direction of travel is the right one, but the speed is uh, nowhere near um, at, at, at the level that it needs to be. And I think that's fundamentally correct. And I, I, you know, Danny, I wish I had some kind of magic bullet um, that could create that kind of urgency. I feel like every, people are saying a lot of the right things. I actually, I, I just noticed having studied a lot of these issues, just how much more interest there is, even just in the general public, just from anecdotally talking to people, they just seem much more aware and much more negative on China and the public opinion polls bear that out. But translating that into concrete policy actions, and in particular, trying to shore up the military balance, that's a whole other barrel of fish. And um, I, I really don't have an easy answer. I don't know how much more plugged into the Beltway, so maybe he can give us some hope for optimism. But from where I sit outside the Beltway, uh, it just looks like a lot of talk and uh, very little action. I don't deal in optimism, and I would just say it's it's worse than you think because we can't do the World War II-style industrial mobilization right now. We don't have the industrial base for it. We, we don't have the skilled labor force for it. We don't have the machine tools for it. And and so one of my real concerns is that you know even if we get serious about the first three weeks of a conflict with China, we've given almost no thought to what happens after that and how we sustain a high-intensity fight in the Western Pacific if, God forbid, we have to fight it. Quick exit question for me. There's a counteroffensive going on in Ukraine right now. The Russians have really oh, yeah, overestimated, <laughs> have completely overestimated the, their capabilities. Does that give Xi Jinping pause? Because the PLA has got to be as corrupt, if not more corrupt than the Russian military. I mean, it's in every business venture in, in, in China. Is, you're finding in Russia that you know the generals told Putin that they had six tanks and they really only had three because they stole the money and all the rest of it. You know, is that kind of corruption happening in the Chinese military? Is there, are they thinking maybe we can't pull this off? There's definitely corruption in the Chinese military. It's it's a lingering problem, but I don't know that that convinces Xi that he can't pull it off because I'm sure that Xi Jinping thinks that the Chinese military is better than the Russian military. These, these two countries don't actually love each other that that much. Uh, and it's it's not entirely clear what lessons he's drawing from Ukraine. And so you know, maybe Xi Jinping is really impressed with the West's and Ukraine's performance and it makes him think that conquest is hard and he shouldn't invade Taiwan. Or maybe it just makes him think that Putin's mistake was not invading decisively and wrapping this thing up in four days before the Ukrainians could resist and the world could rally on their behalf. Maybe he thinks that uh, Putin is right, that the United States would intervene in Ukraine if Russia didn't have all these great nuclear weapons. And so China will be able to deter U.S. intervention. We, we just don't know. And so it would be uh, imprudent to assume that he will be deterred by what he's seen. I, I worry he feels he, his job is done because when he first came to office, his disdain for the PLA was palpable. He basically felt that it was bloated 
and inefficient and highly corrupt. And so he went on to punish or purge more than 13,000 PLA officers, uh, partially to get rid of political rivals, but also because he thought you know, this is one way to professionalize the force very quickly to accomplish his very ambitious aims. Now, I think it's probably counterproductive. The political science literature is pretty clear that when you try to, when a dictator comes in and just clears house in a military, everyone just starts focusing on being and demonstrating loyalty rather than actually engaging in any kind of initiative or innovation. And the fact that Chinese military officers now have to spend 15 hours a week doing political work and studying Xi Jinping's thought is probably not great for their professionalism. But I could see Xi Jinping thinking, well, hey, I came in here. I brought the hammer down. The force, at least on paper, when they parade in front of me, looks great. And I have all of these hawkish generals telling me that, you know, it's a fundamentally new and revamped force and is ready to go. That's what I just worry about, that when you have a dictatorship that becomes an echo chamber, that the guy at the top, um, both for his own psychological reasons, as well as just the, the biased information that he starts to receive after he's killed the messenger so many times, can cause them to, you know, miscalculate. I know dictators don't miscalculate, as you guys said, but there's at least a possibility. <laughs> We could keep you on for hours, and we've kept you longer than we promised. Danger Zone, the coming conflict with China, is absolutely worth everybody's time. And I hope you guys will come back. This is just fascinating. It's one of the things that makes me most proud to be at AEI is this kind of really great work. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you so much for having us. What's your main impression coming out of this really kind of worrying conversation? We're going to be at war with China, and we're not ready for it. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's look, look, no, no, look, yeah. I mean, you know, we rarely talk as much about our colleagues and our colleagues work uh, on the podcast as we have today. But we have a, another colleague, um, Dan Blumenthal, who has written that we've over militarized this conversation, that there are things that we could do, for example, about Taiwan um, diplomatically and economically that we should talk a lot more about because we're not ready to talk about military because we're not ready. The problem, of course, is the less we talk about it, the less we, we do. But I, I I do think that there are just so many problems here. We're not actually ready to talk about this diplomatically. We haven't punished China diplomatically for the things that they've done in Taiwan. We haven't punished China diplomatically for what they did in the South China Sea. We haven't punished China diplomatically for, for the millions of Americans who have well, been sickened by the virus that came out of a lab in Wuhan. Or the Uyghur genocide. Yeah. Right. Yep. Or or the intellectual property theft. And I mean, when we talk about that, guys, that's not a throwaway. The Chinese sat in the systems of our main defense contractors and stole the plans for the F-35. What were the consequences of that? As nothing. best I can tell, nothing. But here's the interesting problem and the conundrum that, that Hal and Michael give us, which is if China is a declining power or a country that's about to decline and has it sees a window of opportunity and also is in feels encircled, and that could cause them to lash out, then people will use that to argue that, well, we better not provoke them. That's the, that's the Biden approach, right? And we need to do the opposite. We need to punish them for these things. We need to project strength. We need to, de we need to deploy the capabilities in the Pacific to deter them from even thinking about uh, trying to launch an invasion of Taiwan so that we don't have to go to war. We need to strengthen our alliances. I've been a long advocate. Uh, we didn't get, in, get a chance to get into this, but I, I, I've been a long advocate that NATO needs to go out of area. We should bring Australia into NATO. Uh, we should bring uh, Japan into NATO. I mean, if the NATO alliance is going to be relevant, the, the threat is now, you know, obviously the Russian threat is still there and it's needed, uh, but the the, the, the long-term threat is coming from, from China. So why don't we bring the alliance into the Pacific? I think the Australians would join in a heartbeat if we asked them, and it would be uncontro as, as uncontroversial as Finland and Sweden joining. And, you know, let's encircle them in a way we did the, uh, the Soviet Union because that worked. You know, the, the having having an Article Five commitment is what kept the peace. And well, the, and the, the Soviet Union was secretly poor. It was a hollow shell. China is on its way to becoming a hollow, shell, a hollow shell, but it's not there yet. And of course, this is what Helen and and Mike suggest is that they may feel like their power is dissipating and that they must act before they are the hollow shell that we've described. We unfortunately have not geared up so that we are, you know, not much better than a shell ourselves at this point in a whole variety of ways. And, you know, some of our, our friends have pointed out rightly that we have depleted our stocks. That's a, I want to do a whole podcast on this because there was a story the other day that said it's going to take us Five years to, to to restock the javelin missiles that we've given to the Ukraine. Yeah, no, we need to years. talk to we need to talk to Mackenzie about yeah. this because it is a disgrace that our military industrial base has 
declined to the point that it's going to take us five years to restock after helping, not not fighting, but helping Ukraine. And we're not the only ones yep. helping Ukraine but those fight wep- the Russians. But you know the great How thing about ridiculous but on, there, and this is where something we're, I want to really do a podcast on this because this is really fa- it's a fascinating topic because at the same time they are are given those weapons to the Ukrainians has one decimated the Russian military and make it, making it much of a less less of a long term threat to the point that they're actually importing artillery shells from North Korea because they're so depleted. Right. Um, and but- two. It's been a great opportunity to test our capabilities in the battlefield. A lot of new advanced capabilities that we have not used in war uh, that the Ukrainians are using. So there's there's upsides and downsides to to this whole thing. I, I hope I hope you're right. The one thing I will say, you know, where we ended with with Helen Mike uh, is is the thing that troubles me the most. Uh, we've changed our rhetoric. You know, we're no longer people, responsible stakeholder uh, arguments are no longer at the forefront. You know, uh, you've heard me say this on the podcast before, but you know, AEI has a, a big uh, annual conference called the World Forum. And about 10 years ago, Derek Scissors and Dan Blumenthal and I wanted to do a, a, a panel on the danger of Chinese decline. And we couldn't find, I'm not kidding, we couldn't find a panelist. Wow. Okay. Now I don't think you now could we got find, two. <laughs> and I don't think you could find. I don't think you could find anybody serious who didn't, who wouldn't, who wouldn't share at least some of this perspective. They may not want to believe that China is about to attack Taiwan or that China is, in fact, as economically hollow as it is. But there's no one who is saying that China is in a, going in a better the debate's direction. Debates over, not. If but when. Right. And yeah. and that that problem, instead of acting like we uh, we see, you know, a, a tidal wave coming and, you know, racing to figure out how to batten down the hatches and arm ourselves appropriately. We're just all in the talk about it. Well, phase so so still. here's the question we should be asking ourselves, which is what, you know, in Ukraine, what what do we wish that we had given them before Russia invaded? That would have made this a lot might have deterred them or at least made the, made this war a lot shorter. Right. We should be asking ourselves if 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 China invaded Taiwan tomorrow, what capabilities would we wish we had given the Taiwanese? What capabilities do we wish we had deployed? What capabilities do we wish we had developed in order to to combat them and deployed and do that now? Amen to that. Once again, Mark, you have found the uh, acorn. <laughs> you know what, Eddie? I got a pile of acorns. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, because you say it all the time. Once uh, again, I found the acorn. You're right. I find uh, a lot of acorns. All right, fine. But I'll, we'll we'll all say goodbye to Mark as he continues to protest his brilliance. Thanks for being with us, folks. <laughs> See you next week. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at aei.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 